Welcome to Season 2 of the Practicing Presence Podcast, where spiritual formation is fueled through a variety of practices rather than a single prescriptive time of devotion, where we discuss different spiritual practices that help us be more present with God, others, and ourselves. What's going on, practitioners? What's up? How's everybody doing? Hope everyone is doing great. We are still in Inspired. Last episode. We're not going to do a wrap-up? I guess we probably will. Anyways. Church Stories, Chapter 8. Yeah, this one, um, somehow one of my favorites and yet also one of my least favorites, living in some kind of tension chapter. And I think more so just because uh, the New Testament is like my life and history and all of my academic career specifically on paul who's we're going to spend most of the chapter talking about i got an entire shelf dedicated to paul um and i've re- i've read every book on that shelf um, except this one and pastor paul is what it is called yep i've got to read that one which is coming up but um, Paul hits very close to home for me because I love Paul. I was actually accepted into a PhD program to do Paul. Um, so, yes, I love Paul. Um, and this chapter is all about New Testament literature. And something that she points out very quickly, and we talk about this all the time, but... I had a preaching professor tell me one time, if you really want somebody to know something, say it until you're blue in the face, because that probably means they're just now starting to listen to it. Yeah. Um, The New Testament, the letters of the New Testament, they are letters, including the book of Revelation. The -hmm. letters to the seven churches is the introduction of who that letter is for. Letters have a specific recipient in mind. Yep. They are written for us, not to us. Yep. Paul had no idea in his mind that you would be reading his letter to the Romans. Yep. If he did, I think he probably would have wrote it differently. Yep. I think he probably would have explained some things a little bit differently if he would have known that people were going to be reading it for 2,000 years think he probably would have detailed out what he meant a little bit better. Mm-hmm. The pressure on that's quite different of saying, hey, I'm going to write this letter and send it over to all those you know, few house churches over there in Rome, and then going, oh, wait, no, Christians for eternity are going to read this letter. Yeah. I think Paul would have wrote them down different. I think I'm just so. being honest. I think so. This is what Rachel says about it. As Pastor Adam Hamilton explained, When you read one of Paul's letters or any other New Testament letter, you are reading someone else's mail. Christians often forget this. They read Paul's letter as though he wrote wrote just for them. This works fine most of the time. Paul's instructions, his theological reflections, and his practical concerns are amazingly timeless. But they become most meaningful 
and we are least likely to misapply their teaching when we seek to understand why he may have written this or that to a given church. Which, the reason that's important is because we have a problem when we read Paul's letters. And specifically, I think this problem is more unique to fundamentalist traditions that need inerrancy. But you will frequently find us having a conversation of whether a propositional truth stated in one of Paul's letters is universal or cultural slash contextual. So, for instance, you will hear me frequently um, say that if Paul wrote the Timothy epistle where it prohibits women, I don't think that's a universal claim. I think that's unique to Timothy's church in Ephesus. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm reading that cultural or contextual even, not even cultural, contextual. Other people in our tradition don't read that contextual. They read it as universal. Right. Now, here's the problem. They have a lot of other verses they've got a hurdle over. And I've only got the one. So they have to go, oh, well, all those times where Paul's affirming all those women doing all that work, well, that's contextual. Like, that that's just in that context because the men didn't step up to do their job. <laughs> Heebie-jeebies, the misogyny. Holy. Anyways, that, that narrative exists for sure. Yes. So you'll frequently find ourselves having this conversation. Well, is that a universal claim or is that a contextual claim or is that a cultural claim? Whatever. And how does this pop up? Okay. Uh, where's my Bible? Well, it doesn't matter right now. But we do this with everything, not just the New Testament, mm-hmm. right? For instance, um, Clayton. You have piercings? Yes. Why? Because I, I like them. Right. But didn't you know the Bible says you shouldn't get piercings? Oh, yeah. But that was a long time ago. And oh. it was very contextual to uh, the worship of pagan gods. Yeah. Uh, hey, you eat bacon? You eat bacon this morning. I love bacon. But the Bible says... You're you, not supposed to eat bacon. Right. It's a contextual thing. Hey, you're wearing two different types of fabric right now. Oh, yeah. Very big contextual issue. Yeah. Yeah. Contextual or cultural? Oh, that might have been a cultural thing. Yeah. 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 Um, hey, but you're also not supposed to sleep with a man. Yeah. Contextual, cultural, or universal? Oh, that is the question. You see my conundrum. Yeah. We, and this is Rachel's point, is we go through cherry picking what's cultural, what's contextual, and what's universal based on our already existing worldview. Yeah. Why why can we easily make the claim that, oh, you can't eat shrimp, Mm. or you can't eat shrimp because that was a stupid rule and... Boy, Lord knows I love me some grilled shrimp. Well, why wasn't I supposed to eat pork but I can now? Because a white man read the Bible and was like, well, that's stupid because uh, (laughs) bacon is definitely a gift from God. So we're just going to throw that one out. But, oh, 
We don't like it when two dudes sleep together. So we're going to keep that one in. That's somehow universal. Yeah. And we're going to say we rooted it in creation. Um, we're going to talk about that here in a minute. That's why I'm picking on that one because Rachel brings it up again. But you see the the dilemma here. Right. We're, and this is my point is we're all cherry picking verses. Yeah. Everyone does that. Everybody cherry picks and everybody Every tradition does this thing. Correct. To everybody, fit their own narrative. Correct. Everybody figures out how they do it. And because we do that, we do the same thing with the epistles. Mm -hmm. And we forget that we're literally reading somebody else's mail. That's right. And we make them law. This is what she says. The epistles were never intended to be applied as law. Even conservative biblical scholar F.F. Bruce, which he is a very conservative scholar. I've got multiple of his books on that shelf right behind Clayton. Um, he's absolutely a very conservative scholar. Once remarked that the Apostle Paul would, end quote, roll over in his grave if he knew we were turning his letters into Torah. Mm -hmm. Paul would be absolutely not okay with that. Yeah, very uncomfortable. No. Paul believed the Torah was supreme. Yeah. Everything was to be evaluated against Torah, of which Jesus was a new evaluation of Torah, right. not a replacement of Torah, a new evaluation of Torah. But Paul definitely, and if he thought it was going to be Torah, he definitely don't think he would have wrote some of them. Yep. Or put the things in it that he did. Yeah. I or think worded he, things the way that he would have. Like maybe he wouldn't have said... Hey, and don't, in Philippians, hey, and don't forget to bring my journals back when yeah. you come. Yeah. When you send someone, bring my books back. Mm -hmm. I don't think he would have put that in there if he thought they were going to be Torah. They're literally somebody's mail. Yeah. That's why you have things like that. Oh, greet so-and-so. I really had a good time last time I saw him. Yeah. That has absolutely no relevance to you, reader. It's because it wasn't written to you. Yeah. It's written for you. And there are some truths that can be taken and asserted and written down as gospel. But there are also some things that you've got to really wrestle with. Is this contextual? Is this cultural? Or is this universal? Yep. And the epistles are written for us, not to us. That never stops being true. But we get into trouble when we make when we mistake instructions intended for a specific group of people at a specific moment in history as universally binding for all. What are the common ways we do this? Let's specifically pick on the New Testament. Maybe women? Mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, we talked about this one earlier. It's a pretty common one. Um, but I think you could do it for lots of things. Um, in a... And I'm going to go ahead and say what I want to say, even though people are going to say, well, you're reading into the text. Fine, whatever. Uh Call me crazy. Uh, <laughs> but um, 
The command to not be drunk or not mm. be a drunkard yeah. doesn't pop up very often. No. We've also got examples of people being called righteous mm. and being drunk. So narrative not really clear there. However, I will say what you will notice is drunkenness pops up in certain letters a whole lot more often than it does in others. And it never, not once, that I can remember, listener, comment if I'm wrong, never once does it pop up in the Gospels. I can't think of any. And so, if you go read the letters, heck, even Acts, it's not really a problem there. No. So if you go read the letters where it's brought up, what you will notice is all the places where drunkenness is commented on, it's also places that have heinous sexual cultures. Yep. Which you don't have to be around alcohol very long to realize that alcohol and sex escalate things very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, contextual or cultural? Cultural. Ah. Contextual. Mm. Cultural would be it's a prohibition for all of that culture. Mm, fair enough. Which is not true because Paul tells Timothy, have mm. a little bit of wine for your stomach. Right. Fair point. But fair, fair, fair. don't let your deacons be people of too much wine because you got a sex temple down there in Ephesus. Mm. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe read in context and understanding the way that these things are in, like the um, intersectionality of these things is actually quite important to the interpretation of the letter. Yeah. So when you start to do this, you can put pieces together. And she goes on, and she actually equates the epistles to that of wisdom literature. She says, uh, in a sense, the epistles are a lot like wisdom literature, for they remind us that wisdom isn't just about knowing what is true. It's also about knowing when it's true, untangling culturally conditioned assumptions from universal truths in order to figure out how the wisdom of the epistles might apply to us today is the task of modern-day hermeneutics, and it's not an easy one. Consider, for example, and I love this. This is a argument that I use quite frequently. Consider, for example, the confusion around how ancient people understood the terms natural and unnatural. You never know it from current debate, but the Bible says very little about same-sex behavior and arguably nothing at all about committed same-sex relationships, whose prevalence in the ancient world is subject is a subject of historical debate. One of the few indirect references to same-sex activity is in, in Scripture appears in Romans 1, where the Apostle Paul, arguing that both Jews and Gentiles need salvation, alludes to Gentiles who were so inflamed with lust, quote, that the, quote, women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones, and men committed shameful acts with other men. Okay. Now, how have you been told to interpret that? Gay people are bad. <laughs> wow. Yes. Yes. But that is how I've been taught to read that. All because of the word unnatural. Yeah. That they engaged in unnatural relations. Yeah. Or shameful acts with other men. Mm-hmm. Those are the two those are the two words. Without reading ahead in the book, because you haven't read this chapter, 
Can you think of another time in which Paul says something is natural and yet unnatural? Same word, so therefore same implication of how you should interpret it, correct? Sure. That is how you were taught hermeneutics works. Mm-hmm. If you're going to do word studies and put emphasis on words, then they matter universally across the text. Agreed. That's how you were taught to interpret. Yes. Okay. Can you think of another time where Paul says something is unnatural? Not to not right off the top of my head. Oh, it's in First Corinthians, my guy. Uh, and if you remember what actually ends up being stated, it's in First Corinthians eleven. And what happens is Paul says that it's unnatural for a woman to have short hair, and oh. unnatural for a man to have a man to have long hair. Right. Um. Do you think you have long hair? I mean, it is longer currently than I actually like it to be. But Do you no. think it's a problem if you wanted to grow long hair? No. Do you find women with short hair attractive? Yes. Do you think it's a problem if they wear their hair short? No. So... What's the problem? Why Romans 1? Yeah. When you start to break these things down, what happens is if we're honest with ourselves, we become quite clear on our own biases Mm -hmm. and the way in which we've let our own worldview shape how we interpret scripture. Right. Because we are reading someone else's mail. Right. And we're making interpretive claims based off of that one way or another. And then we're letting our own culture come to the text because we're born in a place and time to a people that have their own worldview right. and begin to hand us our faith. And we begin to read, and when we have questions, what do we do? We go and ask those same people why we do it that way. And unless some kind of experience of trauma happens, religious abuse, something like that, we never question it. Mm-hmm. And then even if you do, sometimes you might just break down that one piece that was broken right. and fix it. So, for instance, this is a very common one. Um, I have a friend. This is his story. Uh, Grew up Pentecostal. Mm -hmm. Lived Pentecostal life. Ends up having a very weird traumatic experience with, like, tongues and interpretation and all the charismatic gifts. So he just says, okay, nope, I'm just going to be conservative Baptist. Mm -hmm. Because now I've gotten rid of the charismatic stuff. But the rest of it, you all kind of believed me. So when I quote-unquote deconstructed or when I quote-unquote realized this was troubling, I just got rid of that one piece and kept the rest of it. Right. It's not until you actually go about reading and investigating and all of these things at these kind of deep, deep, minuscule levels that you begin to realize, actually, we're just all making excuses for the way in which we want to cherry-pick our verses. Yeah. That's absolutely exactly what everyone's doing because if we were honest with ourselves, it wouldn't have taken her pointing out this discrepancy right? when there are countless commentaries written on both 1 Corinthians and Romans. Right. Just wouldn't be. And yet, we have because we are cherry picking and if you remember earlier this week i don't remember what podcast it was on and it may not have been on a podcast at all 
may have been in our well this morning. I can't remember. But I told you, I evaluate things based on the question of how will we be having this conversation in 100 years. Yeah. I don't remember when we had that conversation. but She, she has a little excerpt about that. She says, no doubt, when the Christians of 2218, 2218, so almost 200 years from now, read our books, blog posts, and church newsletters, they will think to themselves, why in the world was that an issue of debate? Hmm. And can you believe that's how they thought about things back then? Yeah. And how was it not obvious that leggings are not pants? Yet the spirit will be just as present and active then as it is now, as it was more than 2,000 years ago. I think that's true all the time. Mm -hmm. And this is why I say I'm becoming more and more postmodern. All of this is going to change. I mean, we look, there are very few things. I told you a couple weeks ago that I'm not convinced that there's any value in anything that Martin Luther put forward about justification. How, how could someone say that? Yeah. Well, because I've now, I mean, he was writing 500 years ago and I've read some other people who have some really good things to say about justification that I think are faithful interpreters to the text Mm -hmm. that don't think Martin's is the only way to do this in a Protestant way. Um, All of these things are constantly developing. All of these things are constantly in flux in the way in which we interpret them all because we're all cherry picking. Mm -hmm. It's It's a confirmation bias issue. In what way? So we we look for, th- we're handed some sort of construct. Mm-hmm. And then we go and we look for things that um, are going to perpetuate that instead of hurt that. Yeah. Um, and because you used Luther as an example, mm-hmm. because Luther was the Protestant guy. Right. Um, everybody just looks to Luther, mm-hmm. right? Like it, that's really what it is. And instead sure. of thinking outside the box and asking the hard questions and trying to find a different way to look at things. Yep. Very true. I think my point in, in saying all of this is just reading Baptist history. I know that a hundred years ago we're having questions about women and slavery that we're not having those questions anymore. Right. We're still having those conversations, specifically the woman conversation. The slavery conversation, we're not so much having. We're more so having a conversation of, hey, have we, have we done a good job of allowing black theology to integrate back in? Right. Um, but, I mean, now we're still having the conversation about women, which I frequently find myself saying, I can't believe we're still having this freaking conversation. Yeah. Um, but what conversations are we having now? LGBTQ? And I'm like, is this a conversation we're going to be having 200 years from now? I, I don't know. My suspicion, preaching through Acts? Probably not. Reading Acts 8? I don't think the sexual other are going to be out excluded for very much longer. I don't think so. I'm not sure. I don't know. Who am I? But um, it's just my thoughts on the issue. Yeah. And I think we would all do ourselves well to be honest and say, look, yeah, we're all cherry picking. We're all kind of trying to figure this out. 
And what we would do better is we'd be better off if we just said, hey, we don't know, but I'm going to judge this according to the character of Jesus. And whoever they are, whatever cultural context they exist in, what I know and I saw and I can be confident of is that Jesus is bringing about restoration for the societal other. Whoever the societal other are, to you, I think you should be asking yourself whether or not you think they're included in the story of Jesus. Thanks for listening to the Practicing Presence podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. Be sure to give us a rating and a review if you enjoyed the episode. It's free and it helps us immensely. Also, feel free to check out our other podcasts.